Well, in the year 2000, my parents decided to put addition onto our house. And uh, the first thing that we did was we dug down, we poured a footer, and then we began to set a foundation. You see, the foundation was critical for the rest of the construction. If we didn't properly lay the foundation, then the rest of the construction above it would have failed or would maybe falling by now. You see, we didn't start with the you know, things that we wanted to put in that addition with, you know, the washer and the pantry. If we would have, you know, taken our groceries and sat them outside or the washer and sat it outside and then started building around it, we would have probably damaged our groceries. We would have damaged the washer and the dryer. But instead, we, we built a foundation. We set a foundation first, and we began to build up from there. You see, that foundation was so critical to everything else that was going to happen. You see, you, you lay the proper foundation, everything goes well. You lay wrong foundation, and eventually the construction will fail. You've probably experienced that watching you know, homes being built in the area, or maybe driving around. Perhaps you've seen an old barn that has been taken care of, but it's falling down, and the foundation still remains. The foundation is set because the foundation was still set properly. And so we're in a new series today where we're talking about what we believe as a church, where we're laying a foundation. Uh, we're, we're unpacking what it is, the essentials, the cores of our faith. It's what comes from the beliefs page on our website. If anybody's ever stumbled upon that, we're going to spend some time unpacking that over the next several weeks. Uh, we're talking about it because whether you're new to faith or you're just checking things out or you've been a Christian for a long time, it's important for us to understand what it is that we believe, what it is that grounds us, what it is that our faith rests upon. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be, be doing that. We're going to be unpacking it. But also you should know this because we want you to be able to engage in the life and the mission of the church. And you can't really do that if you don't know what it is that you're getting into, if you don't know what we believe. And so we, we're going to take a couple of weeks and unpack that for you. There's a lot of things that we're going to, to cover, but there's also a lot of things that we're not going to cover in the series. We're not going to cover things that are considered non-essentials of the faith. We're only going to, to focus in on those things that are core, that Christians throughout time and around the world today have all said, yes, this is what it means to be a Christian, as we all agree on these same set of beliefs. And so you might be wondering about, you know, things like, well, what do you guys believe about end times? What do you believe about, you know, about Genesis? What do you guys believe about the, the Holy Spirit and, and supernatural gifts and stuff? It's like, those are the questions that we're not going to cover in the series because they're considered non-essentials. So we're building a foundation. We're, we're building, so to speak, a, like a theological house from which all those other secondary things, those non-essentials can go in. Because we all have a foundation for our belief system, whether it's Christianity, it's another philosophy, or some other world religion, or maybe it's your politics. We all have a foundation. But the question is, what is your foundation of your faith built on? And can it tolerate the test of time? Will it stand up? So here's what we believe about God. We're starting at the very beginning, the most important thing. What would we believe about God? And so we believe in one God who exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that Jesus Christ is the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God who became flesh to reveal humanity and to become the Savior of the lost world. We believe that the Holy Spirit, who is God, fulfills all who follow Jesus. And so for the remainder of our time together today, we're going to unpack that statement. And that's a lot to unpack, so it's, we're going to go kind of fast. We're not going to, to unpack everything, but rather we're going to do an overview. 
And so this message is going to be a little bit different than other messages here. Number one, because I'm preaching and I don't have the same energy level that Pastor Phil has. Uh, So, you know, if you like that energy, get yourself another cup of coffee and help me to have some of that energy. But that's just not my personality. My my personality is a little bit more mellow. Uh, Also, another thing that's different is uh, we're going to be looking at a lot of different passages, which is so unusual from what we try to do. We try to pick one passage and really unpack it, really dig deep. Um, but to unpack this concept and where that comes from, we're going to be looking at, at many different passages. And in order to do that, we're not going to give the backstory to some of the passages. And so it might seem like I'm trying to pull passages out of context just simply to make a point. Uh, that's not what I'm doing. If you have questions about, hey, you know, I, I'm not sure I agree, can you unpack a little bit more? I'd be happy to do that after the service. But uh, we could, you know, we could spend an entire year just unpacking this concept, uh, but we're not going to do that. We're going to condense it down into one day and talk about the most important thing. And so here's what we believe. We believe in one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, it's commonly, you know, illustrated like this. So you've got, let's see if my pen, my pen's, okay, my pen's going to work. Got that. That's a terrible circle, by the way. Uh, Darla, I'm sorry. <laughs> Darla was my art teacher. Um, so, uh, oh, no, I just made it all disappear. Okay, see if we can get back. I've got to start over. Maybe I'll draw a better circle this time. Nope. Okay, so we believe in God. Okay, and then we also believe that you have the Son, you have the Father, and you have the Spirit, okay? All three are God, all three are connected, yet all three are distinct, okay? So the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, but yet all three are God, and I know that's, that's hard for us to wrap our minds around how something can be three and one. Uh, and, you know, I'm not, I can't unpack all this today because I can't wrap my mind around it either. But I'm going to do my best. And, in fact, I'm going to let some people that are a little bit better at this than me unpack it for you. So watch this short video. So I've got a question that's always bothered me. The Bible says there's one God. But in other parts of the Bible, God is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. How can it be both? Yeah, this is a question that has mystified people for thousands of years. And while we can't fully explain it, I think we can better understand what it is that we can't fully understand. (laughs) What do you mean? Well, think of it this way. Here's a two-dimensional plane. And then here's an object with three dimensions that's going to pass through the 2D plane. Okay, right. From this perspective, the 3D objects above and below the plane. So now it makes sense, but imagine you were a 2D person stuck on the 2D plane. What would you see? I don't know. What would I see? Well, it would look like this. Oh, yeah, okay. From this perspective, it looks impossible. It's one object, and then then two objects, and then three. But in reality, they're all one, just not in a way you're capable of understanding. So you can find that entire video, it's about nine minutes long, on YouTube or on Bible Project's uh, page, Uh, but we're not going to show the whole thing today. But that's what's called the Trinity. And it's this term that was developed later in the church. If If you search your Bible for the term Trinity, you're not going to find the term Trinity in the Bible, and some people use that as a reason to object to this concept. 
And so while you don't find Trinity in your Bible, what you do find is this concept is everywhere when you open up the New Testament and you open up the pages of the Hebrew Bible. And like I said, we're not going to unpack all of this today, but what we do know is that it is a divine mystery that somehow we don't have a category for how to understand how something can be three, yet one at the same time. But we believe in the Trinity because Jesus believed in the Trinity. And anybody who can predict his own death and resurrection and then pull it off, I think we can trust what he had to say and what he believed. And so let's look from Scripture where some of this idea of the Trinity comes from. Uh, One of the quickest examples and best examples comes from Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, where Jesus and his disciples are uh, gathered together. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, and before he does, he commissions his disciples with a mission. And it's called the Great Commission. Maybe you've heard heard of it before. But he says this. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them in the name. The the fact that Jesus mentioned name is so important because uh, in that context, the name represented the character, the sum of who somebody was. So you didn't just name somebody or name something uh, because you thought it sounded cool, but rather you named them as a descriptor of, of what they would become. And so the name of Jesus, or the name of God mentioned here, Jesus mentions that, pointing out the fact that God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they all share the same name, that they are all God, that they are all different. And so we believe in one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We also see this show up, where, especially with God the Father showing up at the baptism of Jesus. And Luke records uh, in his account the life of Jesus. Now Luke was a physician that, uh, re- that researched everything and wrote an orderly account of the, the things concerning Jesus. And Jesus goes out into the wilderness to see his cousin, uh, to prepare him for ministry. His, his cousin, John the Baptist, was sent to prepare the way for the Jewish Messiah. And so Jesus goes out uh, and was baptized by his cousin, John. And Luke records this when Jesus was baptized. That the Holy Spirit descended on him in physical appearance like a dove. That is, that it was a, a metaphor, that it wasn't literally a dove came and rested on Jesus' shoulder, but rather that it was in the appearance or in the likeness of a dove, that it was apparent to all who had seen that God's presence was descending on Jesus. And it was this picture of God filling or God anointing Jesus for his public ministry to go out and do the work. And the people looking on would have understood what was happening because they were familiar familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. They would have known that this came from Isaiah chapter 1, where the prophet Isaiah says this about the coming Messiah that the spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and proclaim to, to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. In fact, Jesus went on to say that about himself. But just right there with the spirit descending on Jesus, it became apparent what was happening. And then not only did the spirit descend on Jesus, but a voice came from heaven and said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. A a voice came from heaven that it was, it was obvious that it wasn't just somebody from the crowd that was speaking a little bit louder than everybody else, that it wasn't just, you know, John the Baptist, but rather that it was apparent that it came from heaven, that it was a divine voice. And that divine voice said, you are my beloved son. That voice affirmed Jesus's divine sonship, that sonship that existed from eternity past, that continues today and will continue into eternity future. 
God did not say, today you have become my son. God did not confer sonship on Jesus in that moment, but rather God affirmed what Jesus already had been from eternity past, that he was the son that had come into the world, that he was beloved. That phrase reveals that out of God's self-giving nature came love, that God loved the other members of the Trinity and God loved everything else that we were going to see about his good world. That the Son and the, and the Spirit came out of a deep, divine, eternal love relationship within the triune nature of our God. And so we see the Father revealed in this passage, but also we see God, the Son, and God, the Spirit, also revealed. All three are equally God, yet all three are distinctly God. And so we believe that Jesus Christ is the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God who became flesh to reveal to humanity or to reveal God to humanity and to become the savior of the world. In fact, this was something that Jesus said about himself. It's not something that the church has made up over time, that Jesus was the son of God, that Jesus was God. But rather, Jesus was saying this over and over and over again. And he, he, he did this in a way that the disciples sometimes had a hard, hard time understanding. And uh, we're going to look at a passage from the Gospel of John. And you might be thinking, come on. Gospel of John, I thought we had a break because we've been in the Gospel of John for about 40 weeks. Uh, we're going to just touch briefly on the Gospel of John, not spend the entire day on a passage from the Gospel of John. But in John chapter 14, we see Jesus and his disciples gathered together, and Jesus was teaching his disciples many things, and his disciples were having a hard time understanding what Jesus was teaching them and hard time understanding who Jesus was. And Jesus uh, has an interaction with one of his disciples in John chapter 14. Philip said to, to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Show us the Father. You see, Philip came from a, a Jewish background. He was a good Jew. He, he wanted to see God face to face. He was familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, and so he knew that people had seen this in the past. People like Moses, people like Abraham, people like Elijah. But yet, Philip also knew that nobody could see God face to face and yet live because God was holy other, holy separate, holy pure, that we cannot stand in God's gloriful presence. But how could Jesus be God yet I'm standing in front of him having conversation and yet I'm still alive? And it, it was just mind-boggling for Philip. And so he said, just, just show us the Father and we'll believe because I don't have a category for what's going on right now. And I'm guessing if we were in Philip's shoes, we probably would have said the same thing. Said, God, just, just show me yourself. Reveal yourself to me. Maybe you've said that to God before. And if you have, you're not alone because uh, somebody who spent three years with Jesus asked the same thing. Just show us the Father. I want to see God. And Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. Basically, Jesus was saying, look, God, the Father, and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I am the best representation of what the Father is like. Okay, So you don't have to ask to see God because God is here. God is among you. I am here in front of you. See, Jesus had done many signs up until this point, validating who he was, things that no mere man could do indicating the fact that he had some sort of divinity about him, but yet he also taught. And so the things that, that Jesus had, had taught them were hard for them to understand, but then they had also no category for some of the things that Jesus was doing. Jesus continues on, he says, 
How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I and the Father are, I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Again, he's saying, look, I and the Father are one. If you've seen the Father, or if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's enough. See, Jesus is God, the Father is God, but again, they're, they're distinct, they're separate, but at the same time, they're both God. Continuing on, Jesus says, the words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I Otherwise, believe because the works themselves. And Jesus is highlighting the fact that him and the Father are one, yet just because of his teaching, it, it, you know, hard time, it's, being, it's hard for them to grasp that. So don't look to my teaching, but look rather to my works. And the main work that Jesus came to do that he would demonstrate later on was that he came to be the savior of the world, of the whole world. And earlier in John's gospel, John recorded this. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not be able to have eternal life. For God loved the world. That God loves the world is a genuine self-giving nature of God, that who God is at his core. The gospel writer John would go on later to say that God is love. If you want to know what God is like, look to the person of Jesus and know that God is love. Whenever we're reading scripture, we, we bump up against things about God that we don't understand, that maybe we don't like. We have to look to the person of Jesus to help us understand because ultimately we know that God is love. For God loved the world, the whole entire world, not just part of the world, but the whole world, everyone in the world and all of creation, God loved. God loved the world. He was willing to give. He's willing to lay down his life, to step down from heaven, to become human. Earlier in John's Gospel, John said, and the Word became flesh. The Word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or he moved into the neighborhood and lived with us as neighbors. The Word of God became flesh. He was willing to give up himself so that everyone, not just some, not just the righteous, not just the elect, but everyone who trusts in Jesus can have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The world the goal in sending Jesus wasn't to destroy the world, but rather to save the world, to bring about his restoration, to bring all things, to reconcile all things unto himself. And God provided a solution to the problem that the world faces today, which we're going to unpack more next week, but the human problem sin, of going our own way, of choosing to find good and bad on our own terms instead of how God defines them. Jesus came as that solution, as the very essence, the representation of who God was, as the love of the Father. And anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son so John is basically leading us with a question, asking, what are you going to do with God's solution to the sin pollution? What are you going to do with God, with your problem? Because God has provided a solution. Are you going to trust in that solution? And the beautiful thing about the Christian faith is that once we begin to follow Jesus, we're not on our own. See, God did something that no other God, that no other religion has done or can do. That is, he didn't leave us alone in our sin, but rather God entered into humanity. Stepped down on the pages of history as a man to live as we did. 
to become the solution to our problem. And once he ascended into heaven, he didn't just leave us there. He gave us his helper. The helper is how Scripture talks about the Holy Spirit of God sometimes, that it comes to help us, to guide us in things concerning sin and righteousness, but also to transform us, to live as the people that God has created and designed us to be. So we believe that the Holy Spirit, who is God, fills all who follow Jesus. And when we open up the page of the New Testament, one of the best illustrations that we see is in Acts chapter 2. So Luke wrote his gospel account of the life of Jesus, but then he also wrote the book of Acts. Actually, they're one, but they were split uh, because the scroll was just too long, so they cut it in half. Uh, so we have Luke, Acts. So Acts records what happens after Jesus ascended into heaven, how his disciples went out and continued the mission of God uh, in and around Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. And so in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus ascended into heaven, he, or before he ascended into heaven, he told his disciples to wait until he sent them the helper, until he had sent them the Spirit. And so in Acts chapter 2, beginning verse 1, we read that when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were gathered together in one place. And suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were standing. That is, that it was a violent wind that came from heaven, that it was apparent, again, like the voice that came uh, at Jesus' baptism. It was apparent that it wasn't just a gentle breeze, that it wasn't just a storm brewing off in the distance, that it was a divine wind, that it was apparent that it wasn't something normal, that it was coming from God. And the disciples being, again, good Jewish people, they would have understood what was happening. Because throughout the Hebrew scriptures, God's spirit is commonly depicted as wind or as divine breath. The Ruach of God that breathes life in creation, that helps to bring order out of chaos, was now being poured out upon the followers of Jesus, the disciples, empowering them to go out and do the work uh, that Jesus had commissioned them to do, just like the Spirit had come on Jesus, to fill him for his public ministry. And in verse 3, we read that they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each and every one of them. Again, they would have understood what this picture was because fire was commonly a symbol of God's presence throughout the, the Hebrew scriptures. That God led Israel as, through the wilderness by night in a pillar of fire. That he showed up on Mount Sinai to give Moses the law and the, the whole mountain was covered in fire. That God showed up uh, in the tabernacle in fire. That we see fire in the altar uh, in the tabernacle, but we also see fire as an image throughout the Hebrew scriptures as something that purifies, that helps to refine, that helps to, to bring things to a pure and holy state. And so the disciples, they knew what was happening. They knew that God's Spirit was filling them. And then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The Spirit filled the disciples as God had promised them. And it was apparent, it was obvious to them what God was up to. And so throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see the same pattern, that people begin to follow Jesus when the Spirit comes on them. It's, it's made apparent in other ways, not always by speaking in tongues, but other ways. And the disciples go out and do the work of ministry. In fact, right after this, Peter gives up, gets up and begins to preach and give a message. And after he gives the message, Peter says this. He says, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is for each one of you. It's a gift, and it's for everyone who follows Jesus. 
right after this, after Jesus or Peter makes that statement, three thousand people are baptized that day and added to the church. And so it's implied then that those three thousand people also receive the gift of God, Holy Spirit, to enable them to go out to continue the work that Jesus had commissioned his disciples to go out and do. And so you might be wondering, okay, that's a lot of interesting stuff, but why does this even matter? You see, this matters because the God who lived from eternity past stepped down on the pages of history as a human being. He came to reveal that God is love. He, the Word, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. He now gives us His Spirit to help us to, to become the, the true humans that God has designed us and called us to be. He gives us His life animating Spirit. The Spirit that gives life that does not give death, that gives and brings things back to life. And that same Spirit invites us into that community, that divine, eternal love relationship that has always existed. God invites us into that, into that deep relationship that existed between the members of the Trinity, between the members of the Godhead since eternity past. We are invited into that. All for the reason because God, He loves us. He simply loves us, and He created us for a relationship with him. We're going to talk more about that relationship in a couple weeks. But what we do know is that when sin entered the world, we're going to talk about sin more next week, but when sin entered the world, something happened, something broke. What broke was man's relationship between God, man's relationship with other human beings, and man's relationship with creation. Yet God knew what was going to happen, and God prepared to have a solution from the beginning. You see, the things that, that happened, that breaking of relationship broke God's heart, yet God knew the risk of giving us freedom to choose, and chose it anyways. Because God loves us so much that he wasn't willing to make us as his puppets with no ability to choose, where a yes in a relationship was assumed. He doesn't force himself on us, because forced love isn't love, forced relationship isn't a relationship. Rather, God invites us, and patiently waits for us to be part of of that deep relationship. He desires for you to experience the deep fellowship that comes from intimacy, from knowing God, from being fully known by Him. The invitation is to come and know Him. To know that the God that is love. And so our human relationships are meant to be a reflection of this divine love, of that community that God has amongst the members of God that God had. God intended for us to be that. But we know that our relationships are not as they should be. Because something is broken, we have decided to define good and evil on our own terms. And we continue to try to position ourselves above other people or take advantage of other people. Why? Make ourselves feel better about who we are, about the decisions that we make. And we fail to live out God's ideal for our relationships. We do this even in the church, we do this as Christians. But yet God knows that. God invites us into that relationship even in spite of ourselves in spite of that. And so we come face to face with the God who is love. We come face to face with the God who is radically different from the God of any other religion. The God that said, you know what? You made a mistake, but I'm going to provide a solution. I'm going to step down. And I'm going to bring restoration because I want you to experience the divine love that has existed from eternity past. You get to experience that. And he became a man to deliver us from our sin problem. 
He gave us his own spirit that then helped us to, to go on a mission with him, to help us to become the people that he called and created us to be. And we were invited into it. We're invited into that eternal love relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so my question for you today is, where is your foundation built? Is your foundation of your faith built on the Bible? Is your foundation of your faith built on a distorted view of who Jesus is? Because those things, as we're going to talk about in the coming weeks, those things are not a good foundation. But we have to start with the fact that our God is love. And that we are invited to experience that deep, abiding love with the Father. See, God doesn't just tolerate you. He actually loves you. Jesus wasn't simply an afterthought for a sin problem, but rather he was the solution from the beginning to show us God's immeasurable love. And so maybe you've experienced God's immeasurable love. Maybe you're here today and you haven't experienced that. Maybe you're in the process of deconstructing your faith or trying to rebuild. Uh, and I would encourage you to build the foundation of your faith upon that love. To know the love of the Father. To experience that deep love. Now is a great time to start rebuilding faith. Now is a great time if you've uh, been a Christian for a while to, to look back and say, okay, what is it that I actually believe and why do I believe those things? So ultimately, we believe in the Trinity because of who Jesus is and what he did. If Jesus believed that, we can also believe it. And so we're invited into that. It's not just for followers of Jesus, it's for everybody. Everybody is invited into experiencing that relationship with God. The Spirit who dwells in followers of Jesus stirs people, stirs us to go to God, the Father, through Jesus, our Son. The perfect sacrifice for our sin problem, who was the illustration that God is love. And so today, as we come to our time of communion, we're stepping into that divine love relationship that's existed from eternity past. A relationship that maybe you've never experienced, or maybe you have experienced, and it's time to be reminded or refreshed anew of what that relationship looks like. So today, as we come to the table, as we take the piece of bread, which represents Jesus' body that was broken for us, and a cup of juice, which represents his blood that was shed on our behalf, we are invited into a deep, intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father. And so in just a second, I'm going to pray for us, and then we can take communion. But before we do, I want you to just sit for a little bit. Sit, invite God's Spirit, know the love of the Father. If you've never experienced that love, just simply ask God, God, I want to know your love. And I believe that God will show you his love. Because he is love, his spirit is here. And so I don't want to move beyond this moment without letting you experience the love of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you stepped down on the pages of history to reveal to us who you are. But ultimately, God, you, you showed us your self-giving love that is who you are from the very beginning, from at the core. God, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to illustrate that for us. That you invite us through Jesus to be in, in a relationship with you. So God, now would you, would you help us to know that love? Would you help us to experience your deep fellowship that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? 
we ask that your spirit fill us.